God's promise of life. God's promise of life. Turn to Job 14. We're going to kick right off with the scripture. Job 14. And uh, Job asks a great question. He's been through some, you know, by this time in his experience, when we read this, he's, <laughs> things have gone badly. <laughs> Job's suffering. And, of course, you know, when things are going badly, uh, one's thoughts tend to turn to, well, you know, what happens when this is all over? Uh, you know, when you're facing life and death. And he asks, if someone dies, will they live again? And people wonder. People wonder about that, no matter what their philosophy of life is, what their beliefs are. They want to know, or they think about, or ponder on what happens after life, this life, is over. And humanity as a whole has come up with a wide variety of speculations ranging from grim to absurd and everything in between. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, we've, we've spent some time looking at uh, some of the misconceptions that are out there and hopefully spending most of our time focusing on what the Bible actually says. What does your Bible say about the possibility of life after death? And, and I hope that we'll cover this effectively in this message, why should you take what's written in this book, the Bible, any more seriously than other ideas that are out there? Whether it's the grim or the absurd or something in between. Why give more credence and more thought to what the scriptures say? It's a very important point. We're in Job 14. Let's finish off his thoughts, though. He says... If a man or a person dies, will they live again? And he goes on to say, he answers the question for himself, really. All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call, and I will answer you, and you will long for the creature your hands have made. There's a lot in that verse. In a sense, it covers all that we're going to look at in this message and more. A life where there's trial. A life that involves patiently waiting for change, the change, the big change to come. Calling from God, answering that calling. God's desire to accomplish a greater purpose in you. It's all there. But it's not explicit, is it? When you take a look at the word change, it's kind of, well, what does that mean? Change. I looked up the word, and the word actually is used most often in the Old Testament to describe uh, changing your clothes. So, you, you know, I'm going to change into something, you know, a little more formal or less, you know, I'm going to change my clothes. That's the, time, the way it's used, which should make you think, oh, wow, that kind of ties in with what I read elsewhere in the New Testament about putting on, you know, the new man, putting off the old, things like that. But in the Old Testament, it's not as explicit. Let's take a look at one more verse in the Old Testament, which would be Daniel 12. Daniel 12, verse 2. There are others I could point to, but these basically make my point. Daniel 12, verse 2 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. The answers to that question, what happens after this life, well, they begin in the Old Testament. Yes, but they remain kind of obscure. 
a little obscure. You know the scripture that says we see is through a glass darkly? Well, in some ways their glass was even darker. <laughs> but it was still there. They had glimpses into the answer to this question. But like the scriptures also say, you know, the, the men of old longed to look into these things. But it was not until Christ came, until Jesus came, who taught and added more to it and gave clarification on it, that you could say, ah, now I have a better picture of what this is really getting at. And he did that. He provided additional teaching and clarification on the matter. What happens? What happens after this life is over? Plus, and I think this is as important as anything he taught or said, perhaps, and the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that it's true, more so, it was through his own death and his own resurrection that he provided what I'm going to call an object demonstration. He showed it being done. So it was his life, his death and resurrection was an object demonstration of human resurrection unto eternal spirit-born life. There had been other resurrections before. I mean, Lazarus, for example, he was resurrected from the sickbed. And, you know, so his resurrection, you can point to that. But that was not a resurrection unto eternal life. There are is a resurrection I can think of just off the cuff in the Old Testament. It was that Elijah or Elisha brought the young boy back to life. But that was not a resurrection unto eternal life, was it? It was back to the flesh and blood. Christ's resurrection is the first unto eternal spirit-born life. And in that, it's an object demonstration of, okay, folks, you wanted to know what happens after this human life. Well, here you go. Let's take a look at some of the stuff that he taught. John 11, verse 25. We'll get around to the events, but let's look at what he taught. Jesus taught in uh, numerous ways. John 11, verse 25. He says, I, speaking of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asks a question, which I hope for us is a rhetorical question. Do you believe this? We're in John. Let's go to chapter 14, verse 19. This is uh, some of his parting words to his disciples. And he says to them in verse 19, Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Okay, so he's going to die. He's going to be you know, resurrected. They'll see him again. And then he says, because I live, and he's looking forward to that moment when he is raised back to life, because I live, you also will live. So he taught about this before he died and rose again. And in both of these cases, he's pointing them to what? He's pointing them to the proof that is there in his own resurrection, which is there for them to see and experience. And we have that as well, but not in the same way. And we're going to touch on that and talk about that and look at that. Okay, the apostles were commissioned after Jesus to carry on with the same message, the same message. And also their own personal experience of having seen it happen was a testimony and a witness to this event that it happened. Let's just take a quick look at uh, an example of their teaching in 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. 
We'll reference the chapter 15 a fair number of times this afternoon. It is the resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 through 24. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, then he comes, sorry, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So there's that teaching and testimony of Jesus' resurrection. And this is a fundamental teaching of the church. And in this same section of scripture, since we're there, uh, we may as well look at what Paul says about the importance of the resurrection, the teaching and the understanding of it. In verse 13 and 14, he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. And he says it again later on. You can, uh, you can read that. I'll put it in my words. You know, if it doesn't lead to resurrection, to life, what's the point? You know, what is the point of the law? What's the point of the holy days? What's the point of Jesus, you know, all his teachings? What's the point of meeting together here on the Sabbath? All roads lead to the resurrection. That's what makes this all worthwhile. Without it, what's the point? And um, Paul says later on in the chapter, he says, you know, if it's only for this life that we have teaching and understanding from Christ, if there's nothing beyond, then we're to be pitied among all or pitied above all people. Just another way of saying, what is the point if not the resurrection? So I say that because this is a fundamental church teaching. And so it is important for both you and me and us and the church and anyone who we can get to listen to understand what the scriptures really teach about the resurrection. Okay? It is the most important teaching of the church. All roads lead back to this. Go to Hebrews 6. I touched on this a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the laying on of hands. And it's a listing, a nice nifty little listing that you should kind of have in your memory scripture vault of the fundamental teachings of the church. Okay, what are we building? What do we build everything on? That's the, what a foundation is, what you build on. And it says, uh, therefore, let us move beyond the fundamental teachings about Christ and be taken forward into maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. That's a great memory scripture because that says these are the fundamental teachings and understandings that you build everything on. And we want, we want to build on that foundation, but there is a time and there is a place to make sure that the foundation is in place and is secure. Today's one of those days. We're going to be turning to a lot of scriptures. <laughs> Go to Acts 23. The teaching of the resurrection was something that set the church apart. It set the church apart. And the Jews had somewhat of a smattering of uh, I don't know. They were sort of aware of the concept. I and mean, when we looked at verses in the Old Testament where it was touched on. But again, it was somewhat 
was foggy. It was not clarified. And we, it's only in the New Testament with the teachings of Christ and the example of his life and death that we have the clarification needed to really put our, wrap our mind around it. Acts 23, here's an example. Paul, knowing that the Jews are in somewhat of a disagreement about it, kind of, he, uh, he kind of divides and conquers them because as it says here in verse 8, the Sadducees, this one group, said that there's no resurrection. So some Jews said there's no resurrection. And no angels, no spirits. But the Pharisees, this other group of Jews, believe all these things. So with the Jews, there's disagreement on this matter. But even the Pharisees, who believed, they really couldn't explain it. They really couldn't explain it because there's not enough information in the Old Testament to thoroughly explain resurrection. Now, in that same society, there were Greeks and there were Romans. And they had beliefs about life after death as well. And their beliefs, frankly, held out very little hope for people who had died, any positive hope. Um, what they really had to offer was sort of a very grim outlook of a disembodied soul living in a murky twilight existence like a ghost. Okay, that's, that's what they believed. You, know, you see remnants of that in our society, the whole idea of ghosts and things like that. People sort of living in sort of a twerky twilight between life and death, and it's all kind of, bleh, you know. Maybe it makes for fun TV shows, but if you think about the reality of living that way, it's very grim. Another idea that was very popular among the same people was the idea of being absorbed into the consciousness of the universe, the pantheist outlook. You know, God is everything, God is all, and I'm just going to, you know, go back to the dust and, you know, my consciousness will be absorbed in the greater consciousness. And, you know, you see plenty of that with, you know, your Eastern religion and, and uh, new agey stuff. Uh, but they had that there. And to me, that's just a fancy way of saying that when you cease to live, you cease to exist as an individual. Maybe some memory of you lives on. You, there's something you contribute to the universe. But as an individual, no. Nothing. So this is the kind of world that the gospel message goes into. Kind of grim, kind of dark, murky, definitely looking through a glass that is you know, not even polished even a bit. You can see nothing through this. Uh, go to Acts 17, verse 32. Paul meets up with some intellectuals in, in this society, the people, the men of Athens, kind of like the, the New York Manhattan of the day where all the intellectuals gathered and discussed big ideas. And uh, in Acts 17, verse 32, he's talking to them about stuff and then he reaches the teaching of the resurrection. And when they, that's these Greek intellectuals, heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They laughed at him and said, oh, God, now you've gone too far, buddy. But others said, okay, we want to hear you again on this subject. But it's telling that in this great intellectual city of ancient Greece, there, no church was ever raised up. So the message was out there, and it you know, didn't really reach the intellectual class. But for many in that society, it was very potent and very moving. People who, well, let's say they didn't have the greatest life in this flesh, maybe they were a slave, maybe they were an, an indentured servant or some, you know, a peasant on the farm, 
And so they had, you know, a hard, grim life, and all they had to look forward to was more grimness. And that's it. It was a dark, confused, suffocating, and hopeless outlook on life. Now into this bursts the church. Go to Acts 2. We're going to read a segment of the first sermon ever delivered in the church of God. Just part of it, of course. Um, Acts 2, verse 22 through 24. Peter's speaking here, and he's talking about prophecy, and he's talking about what's happening in their day and their time. And this little segment from uh, verse 22 through 24, he gets to the root of it. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The hope of the resurrection was the teaching that launched the church. When this sermon was given, there were only uh, about 120 people. But if you read on, thousands were added that very day, and then more and more after that. It was a ray of sunshine in a very dark world. It was something to give you hope and meaning. And the church still has the same message. And it's a very simple formula. If you want to, I'm going to try and boil it down to the real essentials. And this is the formula that really caught fire. Accept Christ to save you from your sin and its consequences. Repent. Be baptized. Receive the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. And this spirit is the down payment of life, and then wait and prepare for resurrection unto eternal life. Simple formula. Amazing that something so simple, we take it for granted, I think, but something so simple was so meaningful and moving to people in that day. We're in Acts 2. Let's take a look at verse 38. See this formula. Um, simple formula. Peter replied, well, they ask, well, you know, they say, well, okay, we've heard all this, Peter, what should we do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's see the last part of the formula better spoken in Romans 8. I'm calling it a formula. That's just kind of my way of saying it. But Romans 8, verse 11 says... And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So this is the simple formula, if you will, which points to resurrection to eternal life. Go to 1 Timothy 6. I told you there were lots of scriptures today. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 19 which says, in this way, they lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, the age to come, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, this is an important point, because the, a 
apostles' teaching and our teaching today, the church's teaching, is not about some kind of disembodied half-life or some idea that you're absorbed into the greater whole or loss of personhood. It's about true fullness of life. And we tend to think of our physical lives right now as pretty full. You know, we've got our sensory uh, stimuli going on. I can see pretty things, ugly things too. I can feel, I can taste, I can smell, I can experience, I can do things, I can run up hills and you know, go down holes and swim in the ocean, and, and it all seems very full. What God is saying, what God's word is saying is that the promise of resurrection is to fullness of life. And that what you have now, what I have now, that is not fullness of life. What he's opening up and promising to you is fullness, or as it says here, which is truly life. Take a look at John 10, verse 10. I mean, when we speak of this, we, we know that we begin on the path to abundant, full life when we receive the Holy Spirit. Yes. And your life, walk with God, is full and abundant, but the f- true fullness of it takes place at the resurrection. John 10, verse 10, another um, word on this fullness concept says and here Jesus is comparing himself to others and saying what I've got to offer is way better (laughs) he says in verse 10 the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy false teachers that's what he's talking about and I have come that they may have life and have it to the full So the promise of resurrection is not just more of the same or less, it's more. Now, that is where I have to stop because that is where I would reach the point of, well, I'd be peering through a glass darkly, okay? So we have clarification on the resurrection, but not all things. So I'll I'll stop right there. But the resurrection and the promises that we have and the teachings that we have give purpose to life. Purpose to life. I've talked a little bit about the setting and the circumstances of when the apostles were teaching, okay? And there was lots of confusion on this subject. But today, don't we find ourselves in the same situation? It's different, but it's got a lot of similarities. The main one I want to draw your attention to is confusion, uncertainty. Atheism and agnosticism have left a mark on our society, it's left a mark on you, and it's left a mark on me. I think there are times when we just, we have no idea the depth of how we are affected by what's going on around us. Atheism, agnosticism have left a deep scar on our culture, our society, and each and every one of us. Eastern religions, I mentioned them a little bit earlier, um, New Age type theories, I mean, they're all over the place and some people find solace in those, but really their promise is loss of, loss of identity that you just get absorbed into the big universe thing. Uh, I think some people find comfort in that, but I don't think that you find hope. The only hope that you find in a situation like that is, well, at least this won't go on forever. But the scriptures say 
uh-uh, it can get better. This isn't it. This, is, this life does not define what life is all about. I don't want to, I'm getting too philosophical there. Like we've also got uh, people who have read the scriptures. We've got Catholic, Muslim, Protestant teaching, which is out there, which uh, undermines the straightforward scriptural truth about the resurrection. And I think in most cases, sidetracks people from what the scriptures say and promise about resurrection. So it's a mixed up, muddled up, shook up world, right? Anxiety and hopelessness hang over us like a shadow. And I don't, I mean, I have only lived as long as I've lived and I haven't seen all times, but it does seem like we are in an anxious age and an age where there's hopelessness. Uh, what I've read, I never trust statistics, but it does seem like there's a lot of suicide in our society and there's a lot of drug abuse and alcohol abuse and things like that because there's a lot of hopelessness which hangs over us like a shadow. People need the truth of the resurrection as much as ever. And it's our job, the church's job, to make sure that someone gives them the straight scoop. The resurrection. I talked earlier about Jesus being raised and how that was so important because it kind of gave a, an example of here's what's going to happen. So people could see it. And they even touched it. <laughs> they had to put their hands in the holes in his, in, in his, his uh, wounds. So the resurrection, let's look at the resurrection as a historical fact. Again, I, I also asked earlier, why should anyone believe scripture? Why should we believe in a resurrection? What separates this teaching from all the other wishful thinking and speculation that's out there? It's the truth of God's word and the reality of Christ's resurrection. And you know, then on top of that, we build the fact that we are promised that we get to participate in that as well and follow in his footsteps. So the reality of Jesus' resurrection is very, very important. It is a biblical event, but it's also a historic event. It happened in human history. I put it to you, and I hope to spend a little bit more time as we go along proving that it has the essential ingredients of a confirmed fact of history. Now, when we look at the scriptures, we have to trust the scriptures, right, that they have presented us with the truth. And there are other times in the year when we spend sermon time going over what I want to call the authority of scripture, the authenticity and the authority of scripture. So you might hear myself or Mr. Parks or one of the other men who speak talk about history, probably more me than anyone else, or archaeology, or fulfilled prophecy, and so forth. And all these things are important to help us appreciate and understand the authority of Scripture, that it's true, and it's backed up by events in human history. And all that understanding and truth, uh, yep, the Word of God is God's Word, and it's to be believed, is for very important purpose, which is the resurrection. All these things narrow down to proving the reality of Jesus' resurrection. That's what it all points towards. Everything points towards this truth. Because as, as I mentioned earlier, without it, what's the point? We've gone over the actual events of Jesus' death 
it's been a few years and maybe I owe you another one. But Jesus was executed. He was put in a sealed tomb. And then after three days and uh, three nights, his body disappeared. And even those people who wanted to refute his resurrection could not explain away this empty tomb. He was in there for three days. There's just no way. And I have a message on that, uh, Jesus' death as a historic fact. It's on the website somewhere. I'm not going to go through all the details of that because that would take an extra hour to do. But they couldn't explain away the fact that this guy had died and the body disappeared and there were guards around there and who could roll away this giant stone? And, you know, they basically paid people off to say, well, this happened. And they, you know, they, they gave a bribe to the soldiers. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. We'll just, we're going to stick with some key points on this. The historic reality of what happened. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. Again, the resurrection chapter. Paul says, and this is part of like his introduction to speaking about the resurrection. In verse 6, he says, After that, he, and this is him speaking about Jesus, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last he appeared to me also, as one abnormally born. Uh, Paul did not see him in the flesh, though. Okay, so this is a little different. But the 500 people, that's what I want to zoom in on that, okay? So Jesus' resurrection was confirmed by many witnesses. How many people are in this room? Well, 500 people. That would be a big group of people. And it says he appeared to 500 people at once. He didn't appear to 500 people one at a time. It's 500 people all gathered together, so they'd be able to say, oh, that's, you see what I'm seeing? Yeah, I'm seeing what you're seeing. Right? So there were 500 witnesses. It was done in the most obvious and public way that could be done. There were 500 witnesses, many of whom were still alive when Paul's writing this down. So when he's talking about the resurrection, these people were there, to reference, and you could say, well, you know, Vesuvius saw it, or, you know, <laughs> I make some names up. We don't have a list of who these people were, but they were all alive, and they could be asked, did this really happen? And yeah, there were 500 of them, and you could get 20 of them together, and they could say, yeah, we were there, it happened, we saw it. Some of them were gone by that point. And if Paul was lying, and if the apostles were lying, then those people could also say, well, those, those guys are lying. That never happened. I didn't see it. Nah. It was, you know, something else. So it's important. There were 500 people who saw it. And their witness at that time was an important part of the witness and testimony that was going on through the written scriptures. Okay? Which is a record of what happened. Uh, Acts 5, verse 30. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross, and God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit. This is part of what the apostles did. I mean, they went out, they taught, they made disciples, they taught the whole truth. But part of what they were doing was saying, I saw this. And there's 500 other people I can refer to back in Jerusalem. They saw this happening. This is what I mean when I say that the, the, the resurrection of Christ has the, the natural ingredients, if you will, the criteria for a historic fact, something that happened. 
And that's important. And that's why this stuff is there in the scriptures. These little details, they're in there for a reason. Let's take a look now at the order of resurrection. I talked about how the New Testament gave us clarification. The order of the resurrection is very important to understanding. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 again. Probably should have put my little ribbon in there. And we'll take a look at uh, the verses that we read earlier. Verses 20 through 24. Which say, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Hold on to that point. But each in his turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So there's a reference to the first fruits, and that indicates that other fruits are to follow. And we actually have three phases here, if you, if you think about what we just read. There's Christ, and that's a resurrection. The, the time this was written was already passed. It already happened. Then there's two future resurrections mentioned here in these scriptures. First, those who are his at his return. It says Christ will be resurrected, then those who are his those who belong to him. That's a resurrection to come, the first of the resurrections to come. But remember, we read earlier, it said, all will be made alive. Well, that means that there's still people yet to be resurrected, doesn't it? Those people who were not Christ's at his return. Am I right? So there's a place where we find more than one future resurrection. It is a resurrection of those who are Christ at his return, but all are resurrected, so one must come afterwards. That is the end that he's referring to there. Must be a reference to the second resurrection, because Paul says all are to be resurrected. Now, heaven and hell believers, people who buy into the traditional teachings of heaven and hell, which we've gone through in previous messages, hopefully thoroughly enough that we can say we've covered that for this year, kind of struggle with some of the scriptures that indicate that relatively few people will be saved. So they think of resurrection, and then we think of the scriptures that say, well, very few people, this involves very few people. How does that, uh, I don't get it. A good example of scripture would be one that we used in the last time I was here, Matthew 7, verse 14, which says, Narrow is the gate, right? And difficult the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So you read a scripture like that, and that can be very confusing to people if they don't understand the order of resurrections and the idea that, yes, there's a resurrection of those who are Christ's, then there's another resurrection of all the rest of those people. We'll give more detail on that in a moment. If you know the scriptural outline of the resurrections, then you know that in a scripture like this one, Jesus is describing what's happening in what the scriptures call this present evil age. Earlier we read a scripture that referred to the age to come. Galatians 1 verse 4 is an example of a scripture that speaks of this present evil age. Um, I'm just going to quickly find that and read it for you. So we kind of nail down the idea that there's different ages. 
Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. So scripture makes a distinction between the present evil age and an age to come, which we read a few, about 10 minutes ago. Different ages. So when you understand the resurrections, you know that well, Jesus is talking about something that happens at the end of this age. Okay? That's why it's important to know the truth about the resurrections, because it answers some of these logical knots that people make for themselves in the scripture by not reading what it says. Okay, uh, more about this present evil age. Revelation 12, verse 9. Important point about this present evil age is this one. Talking here about stuff that's happened in the past. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, who deceives the whole world. So this present evil age is an age when most are deceived, and only those whom God draws to himself are called out of this darkness and into the light of truth. John 6:44, another scripture you should know. And for some of you, this might seem, well, this is, this is you know, we've gone over this before, time and time again. But it's important for us to know this stuff and know that we know it. And it's important for those of us who are newer to go through this stuff and make sure that we've got it nailed down. John 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me. And Jesus is speaking of himself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up when? At the last day, the end of this present evil age. So we've kind of taken a look here at the order of resurrection. There's a first resurrection. And a go-to scripture on that would be Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, which says, I saw thrones on which there were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and they had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The scripture specifically reads the rest of the dead. And this is another scripture that refers to this group who were not Christ's at his return. The rest of the dead. Okay? So clearly, once again in this scripture, there is another resurrection. Another resurrection. A resurrection of all those who were not in Christ at the time of his return. Got a question for you. You know I love questions, right? You probably figured that out about me. I like to pose questions. Why are non-believers resurrected? Why bother? Why resurrect a non-believer? Let's answer that. We're in Revelation 20. Take a look at verse 11. And it says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This is the throne of judgment. Non-believers are raised for judgment. Now, what do I mean by that? Does that mean God just raises people up just to kind of smack them and say, you know, you sinner, and then destroy them? Well, let's recall what we read 
just a few minutes ago in God's word. One, they were deceived, right? Two, they were never drawn by God into an understanding of the truth. Okay, now, logically, something else must be happening at the time when this great white throne is set up. Just logically. Logically. Now you might say, well, you're applying a lot of logic here. And I don't, I don't know. It's human reasoning. Um, I don't buy that. I mean, human reasoning, it can lead us astray. We don't decide doctrine based on logic, do we? No, we rely on revelation, right? We want God's word on the matter. Now some people say, well, logic doesn't matter. God can do whatever he wants. It may sound unfair, but that's what God's going to do. Because he says so, and he can do it. But I put it to you, well, let's, let's consider logic, okay? But let's also look at what scripture reveals about the resurrection of the rest of the dead, okay? Let's, let's put the logic aside. Let's look at what the scriptures say, what the scriptures really reveal about this resurrection of the rest of the dead. First one you probably know well, hope you know it well. Um, if you don't, we'll make sure you do. Revelation 20 verse 12 says about this time, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they did by the works written in the books. The books are opened. I put it to you that that says, now they are given understanding of what that is. That John 6, verse, now they are drawn, now they are given this understanding. If you think about judgment, what is judgment? Judgment is more than a final decision. It's one of those words that I think just gets used so poorly and so badly we need better vocabulary. But judgment is more than the final decision whether to reward someone or condemn them. Judgment is assessing the matter, making, you know, weighing the um, evidence, if you will, <laughs> the criteria, etc. Like it says here, the, what they did. Uh, judgment is a process that leads to a verdict. A verdict is something else, like a sentencing. You're guilty. You know, you're going to jail, whatever the verdict is, right? But the judgment is this process. Judgment of a matter takes place over a period of time. You know, a trial period, maybe, you know, in our judicial system. It's a process that comes before the final decision is made. We're going to circle back to that. First, I want to point out something else about the first and the second resurrection. They're different. <laughs> They're different. The first resurrection is unto everlasting life. Okay? We've touched on that. We've looked at that in previous sermons. We've looked at it a little bit today. The first resurrection is unto everlasting life. And those who are part of this resurrection, as we read there in Revelation 20, are no longer subject to death, right? We just read that. The second death has no power over them. They are no longer subject to death. I have a homework assignment for you. <laughs> you don't have to do it, but I think it would be good for you. Read through Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, which points out, and I, I, I could spend the whole hour going through this and I'm not going to do it today. I hope to do it soon. But they are given, those who are in the first resurrection, are given bodies composed of spirit that don't age, die, rot. Okay? The second death has no power over them. 
Now, there's this other resurrection, the resurrection of the rest of the dead. And I mentioned this last time I was here, and I mentioned that the second resurrection was a resurrection to temporary life and said physical life. And I saw a couple of heads go. So I thought, I need to give a little, put a little more meat on the bone on this one, which I'm going to actually do literally, okay? The second resurrection is a resurrection to temporary life. Again, using logic, just looking at it, what the scriptures say is the second death has no power over the first resurrection. It's kind of implicit that it has power over the people who are resurrected in the second resurrection, or the remaining resurrection, if you will. And if you read on, you'll see that in Revelation 20, it says, of all those folks, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed. Okay? The second death did have power over them. Go to Ezekiel 37. Speaking of these folks that are resurrected, who are not Christ's at his return, but are resurrected nonetheless, these people fall into this category. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones, and he led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise and a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then the Lord said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Come, breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, these dead, that they may live. So I prophesied, and he commanded me, or sorry, as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord said. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord who has spoken and I have done it. These are the people who people of Israel who had failed. <laughs> they did not, they were not Christ's at his return, and they are resurrected and given physical bodies, like they had before. Skin, bones, tendon, nerves, organs, a whole bit. Still subject to death and destruction. The second death does have power over them. Jesus said some very interesting things about this second resurrection period. I don't know if you've thought of it this way, but we're going to think about it this way. Matthew 10, verse 9. 
Matthew 10, verse 9 through 15, he says, he's talking to the disciples who he's sending out before him to announce his arrival in the various cities of, of Galilee and Israel and so forth. And he tells them some interesting stuff. He says, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable, more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So Jesus is speaking here, a warning to the disciples that they would go forth with this message and people would hear it and some, most, would reject it. Okay, that's what he's telling them. And uh, then he says this very significant point about the day of judgment. We can learn quite a bit from that verse 15. One thing we learn, that the people of that day, the people of the various towns and villages there in Israel, would rise up at a, at a time of judgment alongside the notorious sinners of Sodom. So multiple generations over centuries, millennia even, would be raised to physical life at the same time. We also learned that the sinful and, and I put it to you, deceived people of Sodom, people who never knew the truth, lived their lives in sin and misery, these deceived people of Sodom would find their circumstances more tolerable, more tolerable than the naysayers of Galilee. Well, that, that means something's going on there. They're not all in the same boat, right? It's going to be different. Tolerable here means, and I looked the word up, and I don't want to read too much into just a dictionary definition, but it basically means to be able to, to bear up to, to endure, to stand up to. So to bear up, endure, stand up in a time of judgment. Why? Because they will be willing to hear and repent as compared to the people who were in these towns of Israel who would not listen and would not repent. Go to Matthew 11, verse 20. More along these lines. When Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they, because they did not repent, he said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were two towns up in Lebanon, outside of Israel, Gentiles. And he said, if they were hearing this, they would probably react better. But of course, you know, the way God works, he said, to the Jew first. And the Jews had to be given first shot at it. He's saying, woe to you people, because you're hearing this stuff. If Tyre and Sidon would have heard this, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I think there's a bit of hyperbole in there. But he goes on and says, But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No. You will go down to Hades, the grave, 
For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Sodom would still be a town. But I tell you that it will be more bearable, more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So this one is talking about people outside of Israel, Tyre, Sidon, people who were not called or drawn by God into a knowledge of the truth. They would be raised at the same time, at this same time of judgment. They'd never heard the truth, they'd never had the opportunity to repent, but at the time of judgment, when the rest of the dead rise, they're going to hear the truth, and they will have the opportunity to repent. It will be, as the scripture said, they're more tolerable for them, Things are going to be a little different for different people depending on what they do and how they react and how they respond. I put it to you, you connect the dots here, it'll be more tolerable because they will have a repentant attitude. One more, Matthew 12. Last one here, okay? Matthew 12, verse 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment. The men of Nineveh, man, they were bad. They were bad people. They were not nice. They were very bad people, horrible people. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Then he gives another great example. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, the wisdom that God gave Solomon. She wanted to hear it. What made Israel so righteous and great at the time of Solomon? She wanted to hear it. And now something then greater than Solomon is here. So this is another verse to emphasize the point. People from all eras will be resurrected to life at the same time. It'll be a time of instruction. I think that's why the example of the Queen of Sheba is a good one here. Because she came to Solomon to seek what? Instruction. And a call to repentance. And that's why the example of the people of Nineveh is given there. This is an important caveat, an important point. And sometimes people hear this message and they think, well, you're preaching that people get a second chance. No, that is not what we teach. and is not what I believe we have just taught today. This is not a second chance. This will be their first opportunity to hear the truth. To have the spirit of understanding, the Holy Spirit. To hear, to understand the truth, and repent based on clear understanding of God's word. Important caveat. God will offer salvation to all who have ever lived. And all will be called, and all will be raised to life at a time that is appropriate for them by God's decision. We discussed this earlier. I'm not going to go at, on and talk about it much, but... For those who will not repent, even after all this, still, nah, won't repent. Well, as we discussed last time, they will be destroyed. Destruction is what Jesus taught. Life versus destruction. And it will be permanent. And there will be no more memory of them. And that, my friends, is what the scriptures teach about God's promise of life. How it works mechanics of it now you might think wow is there any <laughs> he's covered all this stuff we've gone over this yeah there's actually still more <laughs> but this is important material for us to know and I hope that by 
drawing it out this way and showing you its place in scripture and its importance, you are committed to knowing how to find the truth in scripture, explain it to anyone who needs to know so that you know and you know that you know.